I wonder, when are we at our best? When are we at our best? It's a time for reflecting on the past year. You might think back to 2023 and think about what was your best day? What was, what was the day when you were at your best? How do we even define that, you know, your best day? When are we at our best? Are we at our best when we perform well? I think that's probably our default setting that most of us would think, I'm at my best. My best day is the day when I performed the best, right? When I, when I, when I did the best. Or maybe our best day is the day when we're prospering, right? When we've, when we've got the, the most success in our bank account or the most success in our career, our vocation, the best grades at school. We're prospering and succeeding. That's when we're at our best. Or maybe, especially in the age of social media, we feel like we're at our best when others approve. If we have more likes and more follows and, and more affirmation from our peers, well, then we're at our best. That's when we feel like we're succeeding. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think those definitions are going to work. I think at the end of the day, if we're performing well, prospering, and others are approving us, we could still be at our worst and not our best. You think about the life of someone like King David in the Old Testament, which is detailed for us in part in the books of First and Second Samuel, you know, his life has a lot of highs and lows. David had a lot of really great days. And we come to the end of Second Samuel, and, and really at the end of Second Samuel, there are like six uh, appendices. There are, are six kind of epilogues that just kind of put a, put a bookend and conclude the record of David's life and his reign and his his ministry as the king of Israel, and really as the greatest king in Israel's history, and of course the one to whom was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the eternal king would come from his, uh, his line. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in David. You get to the end of 2 Samuel, though, and really at the very last chapter, which is the last appendix, it's the very end, there's a focus on one particular scene, one particular moment in David's life. And frankly, between you and me and the internet, I don't think it really would be categorized as his best day. It maybe wasn't his greatest failure, but it was a moment of failure. And it's kind of a head-scratcher, because you're thinking about the, the prophets who assembled and collected these, these moments from David's life, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they collected them into the books that we know as First and Second Samuel. And if I had read this first draft, I would have thought, guys, this is the best we can do? I mean, we want to end on a high note here. Remember that, that little incident with that, uh, you know, tall guy from, Philistine, from the Philistines? You know, what if, why, don't we, why don't we close on something like that? David had many military victories. There, was many, there were many moments of prosperity. There were songs sung about his achievements. I mean, you know, like, let's go that direction. But oddly, and then I think ultimately, helpfully, the Spirit of God inspired those prophets to put at the end of 2 Samuel... An honest day in the life of King David. A day when actually, I think, he was at his best, but it doesn't seem like it at first. And so I think we're going to learn something important about not only who we are and what God calls us to when we can be at our best, but also, crucially, who God is and what that means for us as we navigate every day of our lives, no matter what year it is.
Of course, the end of 2 Samuel has portrayed David as the wise leader, the warrior, the poet who trusts in God. And here we end in chapter 24 with this odd best day. As we look into this passage this morning, I would encourage you to be ready to consider what is it that, that makes you at your best. All right, let's look together at verse 1 here, and we'll see what goes down on this particular moment. This is chronologically detached, so again, we're getting a random kind of moment here uh, from David's life, but again, it's not, it's not randomly selected. Okay, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 24. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. If you pause right there at verse 1, that verse is startling to us in many ways because we live in a culture that is not accustomed to thinking about God's anger over our sin. Our culture doesn't believe that God is angry about sin. We barely believe that sin is a thing. So we'll circle back to this a little bit later, but here you just need to note that God, God is determined to deal with the sin of Israel. And so here the Lord's anger is burned against Israel, and so he's going to discipline them. He is going to correct them, and he's going to correct them through uh, a time of suffering and hardship. But in order to accomplish this, he stirs up David to do something specific, really to actually do a census of the military men in the nation. So at the end of verse 1, the Lord stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. Now, just pause right here, okay? A couple things we have to consider. First of all, what's the big deal about a census? Why Why is it wrong to count the, the, the fighting men of the nation. And again, in, uh, in ancient Israel, that's what a census was. It was counting the fighting men, the military-aged men, men that could be taken into battle. Um, if you're a king, you're going to count the army for two reasons, one of two reasons, maybe both. The first is so that you can know how strong your army is. And the larger the army, well, obviously, the better you're doing as a king and as a nation. And fundamentally, the root reason you might do that would be pride, right? That you want to feel the sense of accomplishment. While this wasn't the very end of David's life, it was certainly latter in his reign after a time of stability and prosperity. And so David wanted to count the military men so he could know how good of a job he was doing, right? It was about pride. Secondly, uh, some things never change. Censuses always involve taxation, and so the fact was that a better accurate count of the, the military-aged men in the country meant better ability to collect taxation. So we could add maybe greed to that pride mixture of what would motivate a king to do this. Now, although it's not explicitly wrong to take a census, it certainly, according to the law of God, it violates the spirit of Deuteronomy 17, where God calls kings to trust him and not their military, to trust him and not their bank accounts. And so this is not right that David would do this. It's motivated at the bare minimum by pride, maybe with a little greed sprinkled on top. So this is a problem. In fact, it's such a problem that in 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles records the same incident, but in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, there the word of God tells us that Satan stirred up David to count the military men. Same verb. Well, which was it? Was it God or was it Satan? And of course, if you're savvy in your theology, you, you know your scripture well, you understand that those two ideas are not in conflict. That God's sovereign purposes always reign, that his purposes always are in, in view. But of course, under his sovereignty, he actually uses Satan's desires against him. That Satan wants to cause problems, and the Lord says, Satan, you want to cause a problem, but I actually want to do something good 
through this. And so the Lord wants to deal with Israel's sin, and so he allows Satan to stir up David to want to count the military men for pride or greed or whatever else. Again, we don't, we don't know the exact uh, specifics of the motivation, but one way or another it was wrong, but God is sovereign over it and will use it. Okay, again, we're talking about David's best day. It's a weird place to start, okay, but here we go. So the king, verse 2, said to Joab, the commander of his army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the troops so I can know their number. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord, may Yahweh your God, multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are while my Lord the king looks on. But why does my Lord the king want to do this? Joab knew this was a bad idea. We don't know if Joab knew it was a bad idea for spiritual reasons because of the pride and greed that were probably in play, or if Joab just thought people don't like paying taxes this is a bad idea. It's going to cause, you know, your polling numbers to go down. But one way or another, Joab's wisdom is shown here, and he, he questions the king, which, by the way, it takes some courage. You know, notice he gently questions the king. You know, but, he, but nonetheless, he pushes back a little bit. Yet the king got his way. Verse 4, yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror, south of the town, in the middle of the valley, and then proceeded toward Gad and Yazer. They went to Gilead and to the land of the Hittites and continued on to Danyaan and around to Sidon. They went to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Afterward, they went to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. When they had gone through the whole land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. I know what you're thinking. There's no way we can understand this without a map, right? There's no way we can understand this without a map. So let's look at it. Uh, here, this is the tribal layout of Israel. And basically, they covered north to south. So the furthest south that's mentioned is Beersheba, the Negev down here. The furthest north actually is actually outside of the borders of, of what we consider Israel, uh, Tyre and Sidon, way up here, which were foreign nations. They weren't Israelite, you know, uh, towns. But nonetheless, David was so uh, prosperous and successful as a king that they were apparently included in the kingdom at this point, which is really remarkable. That's the point of telling north to south and all the places. The point is, look at how big the kingdom is. Look at how prosperous David has been as a king. And so they went north to south. It took them, you know, eight months. And then they finally come back to Jerusalem with the numbers again. So that's, that just lets us know just how, how uh, successful, again, David's reign had been. So at the end of nine months and 20 days, they come back to Jerusalem. Verse 9, Joab gave the king the total of the registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. Well, those are good numbers. That's a a big military force there. But note verse 10. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. Literally his heart. His heart was smitten. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, because I have been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. The fact is that God is determined to deal with our sin. In this moment in David's life, a moment of temptation, when he was tempted to look with pride at what maybe he thought he had accomplished, Right? He wanted to know the numbers. He wanted to be able to tell the kings of the other nations how big his army was. When he chose to do that, 
He did so giving in to sin. And yet God had a purpose, even a greater purpose than just dealing with David's sin. He wants to deal with Israel's sin, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the fact is, God is determined to deal not just with Israel's sin or David's sin, but, brothers and sisters, God is determined to deal with our sin. He is determined to deal with our sin. All sin is a big deal to God. It doesn't necessarily mean all sin is equally offensive to God, but all sin is offensive to God. And so we, we have to understand that our sin is a big deal. And when God here leads David to a place of, of, of turmoil, where internally in his heart he's feeling the guilt and conviction over what he's done that's wrong, we have to recognize that that is a good place to be, a place where you are feeling convicted over your sin. God is determined to deal with our sin. But we have a problem. Our problem is that we live in a day and age and a culture, again, that doesn't believe or hardly believes that sin exists, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Our culture says it's no big deal. And I'll just give you a few examples just to help you maybe grab this idea where we as a culture spend time, for for example, in, uh, in our media, what we are entertained by, we spend time laughing at adultery, right? It's so funny. And we justify in our culture the use of pornography. It's been normalized. Oh, everybody looks at pornography. It's normal. We shrug off conviction about gossip and slander. We, we don't consider fear of man to be a bad thing, but rather a good thing as we amass followers in social media We let greed run its course as we obsess over the markets in our bank account balances. And we could talk about gluttony. The fact that we unashamedly chase pleasure, and especially after this last week, I know I got you all on that one, right? As we enjoyed those leftovers with my in-laws and the best homemade mac and cheese I think that exists, right? And I'm sorry to make you hungry on a Sunday morning, but there it is. Do we, do we ever, do we ever stop and just let the Holy Spirit convict us about what we need to be convicted? God is determined to deal with our sin. And here, David gets to a place where his heart, again, the, the terminology is heart is, has been beaten up internally over it. He knew it was wrong. He knows it's wrong. And he finally comes to the place. It took him nine months to do the thing. And they finally come back with the numbers. And he's like, those are big numbers. I'm an idiot, right? Those are big numbers. I was wrong to want this validation through the statistics. I was wrong in my pride or greed or arrogance or whatever it was to want to know this information. But notice again in verse 10 how he responds. He said to the Lord, he prayed. He humbles himself in prayer. He confesses his sin. I have sinned greatly in what I've done. And he asks God to be merciful to him and remove his guilt. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. The other option to humble prayer, confession of sin, and seeking mercy from God is to hide our sin, justify our sin, or deny our sin to cover it up, to pretend it's not there, to explain it away. And I just have to tell you that the results of hiding your sin, 
denying your sin or justifying your sin will be disastrous. They will. And so I have to ask the question of you this morning as we just listen to the word of God and let this passage impact us, we have to ask the question, am I hiding sin that I have not confessed to the Lord? Am I denying sin that I know is wrong, even though my neighbors might say it, it's right or Hollywood might laugh at it? Am I, am I allowing sin to persist in my life? Am I giving into temptation and pretending it's okay when I know it's not okay, when deep down my heart should be troubled about it? There's an opportunity, I think, to let the Word of God affect you this morning and to follow the Spirit of God where? Into, into humble prayer, confession of sin, and asking God for grace. You want three steps of how to respond to when you fail? There it is. Humble yourself in prayer. What should you pray? Confess your sin to the Lord. I have sinned greatly, Lord, against you. And then ask God for mercy. Lord, please remove my guilt. If you're hiding your sin, justifying it, or denying it, it will find you out. Remember that those the Lord loves, he disciplines. Another funky thing about our culture with regard to sin is our culture has decided that basically anytime you feel guilty, that's like causing you harm as a person. So you should never feel guilty. False. That's false. Because Hebrews 12, verse 6, quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And when the Lord disciplines us, he brings us to a place where our hearts will be right in conflict and convicted over our sin, where we won't be able to sleep, where we won't feel okay, where we will be upset and our stomachs won't feel right, and we'll be frustrated and we'll be trying to figure out what is wrong with me. And that's the Lord perhaps saying to you, you have a problem. That kind of guilt is not bad. That is good. That is a good, bad feeling. Okay? It is a blessing and a gift from the Lord to lead us where? To lead us to confession and repentance. To lead us to call it what it is to bring it to the light and to deal with it. God is determined to deal with our sin. My question to you this morning is, are you determined to deal with your sin? Or are you content to just let it be and enjoy it? Sin causes destruction. That's exactly what it does here in Israel. Watch verse 11. When David got up in the morning, by the way, the implication there is he prayed all night. That's how hard... His heart had been broken over his sin. He wept and prayed all night over it. Well, when David got up in the morning, verse 11, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. There were several prophets that the Lord used in the life of David to minister to him. You'll remember Nathan famously confronted David about his failure with Bathsheba. Here it's the prophet Gad. These prophets are the sources for our material that we have in First and Second Samuel. And so we, we enjoy the blessings and the fruit of their ministry even to this day. So the prophet Gad was, was a servant of the Lord for David. So he goes and brought the word of the Lord to David. Verse 12, this is what the Lord said to, to Gad, the prophet. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three choices. Choose one of them and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David, told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land? To flee from your foes three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague in your land three days. Now consider carefully what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. This is where it gets a little interesting. Because the prophet Gad comes to David and he says, Okay, I've got door number one, door number two, door number three. 
And I'll tell you what's behind each door. And you get to pick the consequences of your sin. And it's interesting here that the sin of the king has now involved the entire nation. And the sin will affect the entire nation. That's how it works. The sins of those leading a nation will impact the nation. But you have three options, and the three options all involve three. Three years of famine, three months on the run from his enemies, or a plague in the land for three days. It's a tough moment. And this is the moment where we finally see this characteristic of David that the prophets and the Spirit want us to see. Watch how he responds. Verse 14. David answered Gad, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great. But don't let me fall into human hands. Now, if, if, there's a lot going on in verse 14. So just bear with me for a moment, okay? David answers the prophet. He says, okay, I have great anxiety. None of these choices are good. That's David acknowledging, like, none of these choices are good. He knows he's the one that sinned. So he's brought Israel into the situation. The Lord obviously has a, a sanctifying a purpose for the entire nation, because that's what verse 1 tells us, that the Lord was angry over the sin of the nation, so he has other, other sins he's wanting to deal with, not just David's. We don't know what they are, but again, God's sovereign over all this, so we have to just entrust all that to him. But what David chooses is based on his understanding of God's character. In Exodus 34, God, God describes himself to Moses. And that definition of his character is actually quoted more or less nine times in the Old Testament. It's repeated in various passages. And in that definition of his own character, the Lord emphasizes what? He emphasizes his mercy, that he is slow to anger and abounding to loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness, that his mercies are, are his countable instances of grace to us are, are innumerable. There's so many that we can't even count them. And in that definition of his own character, we see that language reflected here in David's answer to the prophet. He says in verse 14, Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great. He's banking on the character of God here, specifically God's graciousness. But don't let me fall into human hands. And actually in the original text, it says especially humans from New Jersey. So it's, it's just, that's not in there. You can't, you know. Don't let me fall into human hands. Why? Because humans are petty. Because humans give in to temptation and we don't treat each other right. Because humans fundamentally struggle to be gracious. You've just spent a week with your families. We struggle to be gracious with one another, don't we? We struggle to be gentle and kind. We struggle to be forgiving. And I, we can chuckle a little bit because those you know, humorous moments. But the fact is, some of us in our families have years, have decades of broken relationships because we struggle to be gracious with others and to forgive others. David knows that. And he knows that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He knows that his mercies are great. So David has to choose. And he says, I choose the plague. I choose the plague because I believe that fundamentally, in his heart of hearts, that God is gracious. That's why I'm choosing that. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, north to south, 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. But the Lord relented 
concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand now. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. If you pause there, we need to make this connection between verse 14 and verses 15 to 17. David chooses the plague. The Lord strikes the nation with a plague. Some of us might be uncomfortable with that reality, that the Lord would send a sickness to a people to make a point, to teach people a lesson. But those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And we have to, we have to, at this point, understand that God's sovereign purposes are greater than we can fathom. And although that may be offensive to you, that God would, would do a hurtful thing to a nation to teach them a lesson, the fact is he does it because he loves. He does it because he loves. And so he sends this plague from north to south. It strikes the nation. 70,000 men died in this sickness. The sickness is actually being uh, you know, facilitated through an angel. Maybe it's that same angel that facilitated sickness and death during the Exodus so many centuries before. But as this is going on, David has, has said, I've chosen this because, because I don't want to depend on people for mercy. I know that the mercies of the Lord are great, so I choose the plague, and perhaps God will be merciful. And isn't that exactly what happens? The, Lord, the angel of the Lord comes to Jerusalem. The plague is going to continue. The city is going to be decimated. And there we find in verse 16, the Lord relented concerning the destruction. That word relent is a good word. It's a grace word. It's that God looked at his people and he said, I will have mercy on them. They haven't earned mercy. They don't deserve mercy, but but I I will show them mercy. And so the Lord in Jerusalem, not just in Jerusalem, on a particular hill is where the the angel of the Lord here stops the, the plague. The hill of Arana the Jebusite. More on that in a minute. But the fact is, he gets to this one spot and the Lord says, that is enough. And so he stops the plague. This is the story? This is the story to end the story of King David? This is the, the, the taste that you want to leave in the reader's mouth about David? Thinking about his life and his ministry? What about his best day? Well, I think there's an argument to be made that this was David's best day. Why? Because we are at our best when we trust God the most. David's best day wasn't the day that he said no to temptation the whole day. His best day wasn't the day he defeated Goliath. His best day wasn't the day he won the biggest victory against the Philistines or negotiated the biggest treaty with a a neighboring nation. His best day wasn't the day that he didn't yell at his kids or the day that he he didn't mess up handling his finances or whatever else. His best day was the day when he had to humble himself and rely exclusively on the grace of God. David was at his best when he was on his knees, trusting the Lord. There's wisdom in this moment because David says, if I'm going to bank on anything, I'm going to bank on the fact that God is gracious. We are at our best when we trust God the most. God is so loving that he will give us trials to get us to this place. Have you ever thought of it like that? Most of the time we think of trials as an annoyance. Oh, man, 
a financial bill comes through that I didn't expect. That's a problem. That's annoying. Emotional drama with a family member. Oh, man, again? We got political drama. Okay, yeah, because today's a day. So, yeah, we have political drama, right? That's so annoying. Problems at work? Yes. Oh, man, why can't everything just go smoothly? Financial or physical trials? Sickness? Oh, this is so inconvenient to be sick right now. Serious illness? I don't know when I was planning on dying, but I wasn't planning on dying this week or this year, right? And we view them as annoyances and and we view them as grievances that we have against God and His sovereign care. But the fact is that God sends us those trials because we are at our best when we trust Him the most. And brothers and sisters, so often we have to be put on our back so that we will trust Him. We have to be driven to our knees so that we will trust Him. David's wisdom here is in his recognition that God is gracious and his willingness to live in light of that fact. His best trait was his trust in God. And so now we're back to you. What about your best day? You know, so often, again, we think of our best days in terms of performance. This was not a good performance day for David. He had failed. His pride or greed or whatever had won out. And it was nine months before he recognized it and acknowledged it. Nine months. His advisors tried to talk him out of it. And yet here, in the midst of that failure, the Lord has allowed him to fail, to bring him to a place where he can finally trust in his goodness, rely on the the graciousness of God. David's like, I've blown it. And the Lord says exactly. But David, you're at your best when you trust God the most. Not when you perform well, not when you have the best uh, approval rating, the most followers online, your bank account is the highest, you you have the highest level you've ever achieved in your career, the best grades you've ever gotten in school. We might feel like those are our best days, but the fact is your best day is when you're trusting God the most. And most likely that will be a very hard day for you. It will be a difficult day. We are at our best when we trust God the most. But wait a minute. God had sent the plague as a judgment for the sin. So what? Can he just call it off? It, like, is that, that's not fair. What about his justice? What about his righteousness? Well, let's get the end of the story. Watch verse 17. When David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, Look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. This is, now we're, this is a little flashback, okay? So now we're, we're going back to the actual stopping of the plague. And in that moment, David Just again, banking on the mercy of God. He's at his best when he trusts God the most. God is gracious. His mercies are great. He says, Lord, Lord, I'm the one that sinned, not the nation in this particular case. Now, of course, the nation had sinned and the Lord wanted to deal with that. But in this moment, David says, Lord, I'm the one that chose the census. It wasn't their decision. So, Lord, just please pour out your your anger at me and my family rather than the nation as a whole. Again, banking on God's grace. God hears this prayer. 
But he, when David banks on God's graciousness, God answers. And he answers through the, through the prophet, verse 18. Gad, same prophet from before, came to David that very day and said to him, Go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. Okay? So we keep talking about Arunah the Jebusite. Who is this guy? We don't know. We don't know. I'll tell you this about Arunah. His plot of land, although it wasn't the, the highest hill in the area, this particular spot that he had, it was a pretty good spot with a pretty epic view, okay? So it was a high hill in the region of, in the, the town of Jerusalem. In fact, it was a hill that actually sat next to where David's palace was and the main heart of the city during uh, David's, his reign. So his hill was like, he was like the neighbor, but it was outside of the city walls at that time. And again, it sat a little higher. It was, um, the, the hill that's in question was a threshing floor, okay? Let's talk about what a threshing floor is for, okay? So when you bring in a wheat harvest or barley harvest, you have to separate out the actual usable grain from the chaff, the part of the plant that is not useful to you, right? And so the chaff is light. So you have to, you have to thresh and winnow the wheat or the barley. So I can show you what this looks like so you can get, a, get an idea. So um, check it out. This is not me doing this, okay? But this is someone else doing this. So you would have this, this pile of whatever you're threshing, okay? And this, is, uh, this picture is actually taken in the, the very late 1800s or perhaps the very early 1900s, but uh, this is the same tech that was used in the Old Testament right here, okay? So you've got oxen that are pulling a threshing sledge, okay, with a young man or a boy on it. The threshing sledge has rocks on both sides, and actually, if he was really using it, they'd flip it over, and the rocks would, would be on the bottom, and it would, it would go over the wheat or the barley, okay, and it would separate out, you know, the, the grain and the, the chaff, right? Then you would have to winnow it. So I could show you this. So that's the next picture. So then in winnowing, you take then what's left after the oxen have gone over it with a threshing sledge, and then you throw it up in the air with a pitchfork, right, or a winnowing fork. And when you do that, what's going to happen? The wind is going to come and catch the chaff and do what with it? You know, it's going to blow it away. What's worthless is going to get blown away. The grain is going to fall down. Now we're in business. The best threshing floors are at the top of hills because that is where you're going to get the most what? Look at you agricultural geniuses from Sussex County. You get it. You get this, right? So Arana, the Jebusite, who's not an Israelite, but he's a neighbor of King David. He's a, he's a leftover from the time before Israelites had settled Jerusalem. He has a great hill with an excellent threshing floor. It was, it's a really great spot where they would collect the, the, the harvest and they would go through the whole process and they would you know, win on the whole thing. In fact, his hill was elevated again right above the city of David so he could see down. And it was at this particular spot that we just read that the angel of the Lord stopped the plague. Well, what's going on here? We're at our best when we trust God the most. What does Arana's threshing floor have to do with it? Well, watch verse 19. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, so the plague on the people may be halted. If you just pause right here, notice what's gone on. 
the prophet has said to David, go buy this threshing floor, build an altar to the Lord there, and offer a sacrifice. Why does he need to offer a sacrifice? Because of his sin. Because he's guilty. Because the guilt has to be paid for. And in God's gracious provision, he has designed for sacrifices to be made in place of the guilty sinner so that God can dispense grace to people instead of mercy. If he's going to stop the plague, there has to be a sacrifice. God's grace is real. His mercies are great. But he has designed a particular way for his grace to be mediated to people. And it's through sacrifice. And so the prophet says to David, go buy your neighbor's threshing floor and build an altar there and offer the sacrifice. So David says to Arunah, I'm here to, to buy your threshing floor. Verse 22, Arunah said to David, my lord, the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Arunah, a Jebusite, gets it. He's like, yes, this is good. No doubt he knows about the plague. This is a good idea. He says, in fact, take the land. Take the oxen. Take the threshing sledge and the yokes and use that wood. Let's do this. Let's get this done. Although Arna was a Jebusite, he apparently had been close enough to the community of Israel that he had learned a little bit about Israel's God. And although the Canaanite gods and goddesses also demanded their sacrifices, theirs was a whole different system, a system of performance a system of trying to basically force the gods and goddesses to do what they wanted. But here, sacrifice is a vehicle of God's grace. And Arunah gets it and he says, just take it, man. Just take it. Verse 23. Your majesty, Arunah gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24. The king answered Arunah, no. I insist on buying it from you for a price. For I will not offer to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. Just you pause right there. The primary point of this chapter is not about our attitude toward giving to the Lord. But it's just worth a side note here that David says, I am not going to give God something that costs me nothing. I am not going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord out of the bonus that I got this year or out of the gift cards that I've received for Christmas presents. He says, I'm going to give the Lord something that cost me because the Lord is worth it. And it would be disrespectful. Indeed, it would be sinful for David even to give the Lord something that wasn't of any value to him, didn't cost him anything. Of course, Arona was right, I think, in his, in his gut to say, hey, just take it. And David was like, I appreciate the thought, man, but I'm going to pay that. I'm going to pay tax on this. I'm going to pay the, the fair market value for this because I'm not going to offer the Lord something that costs me nothing. So he does. He buys it. He buys the threshing floor. He buys the oxen, all the threshing sledge and all the rest. And in verse 25, he built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer for the land, and the plague on Israel ended. This was David's best day. Because we are at our best when we trust God the most. But don't miss it. Here, we are at our best when we trust God the most because 
We are dependent on his grace through sacrifice. We're at our best and we trust God the most because God has made a way to be gracious to us. He has designed a system and his system is to offer grace through sacrifice. So 200 years later, right, what, what happens? At the, this very site, Arunah the Jebusite's threshing floor, that's where the temple was built by David's son Solomon. And 200 years later, 300 years later, Israelites are going up to the temple to offer their sacrifices. And at one point, somebody's kid, you know, probably a 12-year-old boy, I don't know, just, you know, picking a random age, says, Dad, why do we offer sacrifices in this place? Why is it here? Why does the temple have to be here? And the dad says, son, that's an interesting question. And actually, the Lord tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 24, because it was at this place that God was gracious to us. At a moment when David had failed, when we had failed as a nation, this was the place where the angel of the Lord showed grace to us. They stopped the plague here. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he's merciful. Because he's designed a way through sacrifice for sinful people to be shown mercy. That's why the temple was built on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. That's why, for hundreds of years, Israelites worshipped at that temple and offered sacrifices there. Sacrifices for guilt, sacrifices for their sin and the sin of the nation, sacrifices where they fellowship together and worship the Lord, right? That's what they did. But the whole system, the threshing floor, the temple, the sacrifices, all of that points to something even greater. Because what? Because a thousand years after David a greater son comes along. And that greater son of David does what? He says, I will replace the temple. Not just by offering a sacrifice, but by being the sacrifice. You see, the work of Jesus, the Messiah, it actually completes the temple work. It's the last sacrifice. The book of Hebrews, we find out, it was a once-for-all sacrifice, All the sacrifices before that were sneak previews, were anticipatory, right? They were just looking forward to the real deal. But finally, that day came when on a hill in Jerusalem, not far from the temple, what does Jesus do? He offers himself. Why? So that God could relent concerning his judgment and so that God can show people grace so that our guilt can be removed, so we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can receive mercy. This is why your best day is not the day of your greatest performance. It's not the day of your greatest achievement. Your best day is the day when you trust God the most, because God is gracious. How? Through sacrifice. He is gracious to us through his sacrificial provision, and the temple pointed to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, this is what you're missing out on. Okay, Christianity is not a political system. It's not not some kind of man-made movement. Christianity is fundamentally a message. And this is the message. That people are sinners and that God is rightly angry with us over our sin. And yet God is gracious. And so in order to be gracious to us, he has provided a way through this sacrifice. That's why there was ever a temple in the first place. If you've never trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you 
that yes, although you are a sinner, his mercy is more. And so the Bible tells us, what should we do? Well, we humble ourselves, we confess our sin, and we trust in his provision. Today, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice at the ancient site of the threshing floor of Aaron and the Jebusite. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus, who 2,000 years ago finished that sacrificial work for you and for me. Of course, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus this morning, this reminder tells us how we should navigate each and every day. Man, we're starting a new year tomorrow. I'm not big on resolutions, but here's what I'm saying. If you're going to make it through 2024, whatever is coming to you, right? whatever, whatever challenges you're going to face, you need to have some good days in this year. By good days, I mean days that you are reliant on the grace of God, where you are on your knees, cognizant of the fact that you need His grace and His mercy. We are at our best when we trust God the most. Will you trust Him this year? We need reminders to trust God. God uses trials as a way to remind us. He uses His church as a way to remind us. As we gather together, as we sing, as we pray, as we talk, to be in relationship with one another, to love each other enough, to chase each other throughout the week, and to say, how you doing? Are you having a good day this week? Let's, let's have that be our code, okay? Are you having a good day? Which doesn't mean are your circumstances going well. Are you having a good day means am I trusting God the most? And I'm texting here. Can you see that? Like I'm using, I'm texting. This is how, you know, anyway. So you message people, right? You, you call somebody, you reach out to them. Are you having a good day? Are you trusting God the most today? Have you been on your knees today? I don't know what's coming to your family in 2024. I know there will be some pleasant things and some hard things, but I know one way or another, the best way you can approach this year is not thinking, I'm going to perform well this year. I'm going to get more followers this year. I'm going to be better liked this year. I'm going to lose weight this year. I'm going to be stronger this year. I'm going to get a promotion this year. I'm going to get better grades this year. I hope all those things happen. But deep down, what you need to have a good year is you need to trust God the most. That's why this is David's best day. My friend Martin Luther, man, he wrote so much, this guy. So much. Lived in the 1500s, right? His, his collected works that you can buy today, uh, 55 volumes. Bible commentaries, sermons, works of theology, letters, 55 volumes of produced literature, which today, again, it's still for sale. You can still buy it. People still study it. I mean, I'm reading it, right? So that tells you a little bit about me, but there you go, right? So, you know, this is 55 volumes. At one point, Luther, at the end of his life, he was traveling from his town in Wittenberg to his family uh, town, which was Mansfield, to settle an issue, uh, kind of a dispute, a problem, and he was going to leverage his age and his pastoral influence to kind of settle this problem and help resolve it. And on the way to Mansfield, he'd get, he was preaching along the way, several stops, and he ends up getting a cold and gets sick. And it was the cold that would kill him. And so there he's, he ends up you know, being bedridden, and he's, he's far from you know, his home. He's, he's separated from his wife. He has some friends there with him. And in the last days leading up to his death, you know, he's, he's writing letters as much as he can and writing notes and things. And then, I kid you not, he, at one point he writes like with the last strength that he can to write. The last written thing he ever wrote. 55 volumes, commentaries all over the Bible, all these letters, all these works of theology. The last thing Martin Luther wrote down on paper 
to minister to people was this. We are beggars. This is true. I think at the end of his life, being so aware that he was going to die within days, I think those were good days for him. Because he didn't bank on his achievements as a theologian. He wasn't banking on his reputation as a pastor or some kind of record of personal holiness. When push came to shove and he was looking, staring right in the face the day of his death, he said, the best thing I can say is that we are beggars. This is true. What is he saying? He's saying we are beggars and we come to God with empty hands. And what do we find in our great God? We find that his mercies are great. Why? Because just like with David, he's provided a sacrifice to take away our guilt and to give us grace. Dear ones, we are at our best when we trust God the most. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us trust him. Lord, we pause this morning together. We humble ourselves. Lord, and we confess that we so often don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want to confess it. We don't want it to come to light. Lord, we don't want to own it. We, we deny, we justify. Lord, we confess that we live in a culture that is morally bankrupt. And that moral bankruptcy, Lord, influences us. And sometimes we laugh at things we shouldn't. We're entertained by things that should not be amusing to us. Lord, we recognize that this sears our consciences, and so in our own lives we tolerate more sin because of the influence of others around us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. And Lord, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, convict us of sin. I pray that you would upset us. Lord, that we would not be able to sleep, that we would be... uh, Lord, with hearts that are stirred up, that are not, not at peace and at rest, Lord, because of our sin, I pray that you would cause us that discomfort by your Spirit to lead us to confession. Lord, we thank you that those whom you love, you discipline. Lord, we thank you for this moment in David's life where we see his wisdom, the wisdom that you gave him reflected in his understanding of your gracious character. Lord, we praise you this morning that you are a God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are great. And Lord, we thank you that you do relent concerning judgment. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have not trusted in you. I pray that they would see your goodness this morning in this passage and see why they should come to you. And Lord, we recognize that your grace is facilitated through sacrifice. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for being our sacrifice for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, we thank you that because of your once-for-all sacrifice, the work of the temple is completed. It is finished. And Lord, we thank you that we can depend on this grace, on your grace, every day. So Lord, help us. Help us now as, as we leave to be at our best by trusting you the most. Lord, I pray for the coming year. I pray for the circumstances that we will face, that you will help us to face them in ways that honor you, following you. Lord, put us on our knees. Put us in places where we have to rely on your grace. Lord, may we grow in faith. May we grow in love for you because you are this gracious. Lord, we thank you for the provision you've made for us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.